progress. It's in the actions we take right now and in daring to think differently. Each one of us can do something to change things for the better, right where we are now. And a thousand small things done with intent adds up to real change. For some people, that initial spark becomes a fire. Welcome to the Every Woman Changemakers podcast. I'm Anna, your host, and every month I'll be talking to inspiring leaders and activists who are changing outlooks, challenging perceptions, and making a difference in the worlds of inclusion, business, the environment, sport, travel, and more. We'll be discussing their work, motivations, and vision, and most importantly, how a revolution of one can lead to a positive, powerful change for the many. Today, we're talking to Eleanor Cleghorn, author of Unwell Women, out this month. A fascinating journey through the misunderstandings, mystification and misdiagnosis of women's bodies from antiquity to the modern day. In it, she discusses who gets to own and express women's health and their experience of it and lays bare the historical male bias upon which modern medicine is founded. So welcome, Eleanor. Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with the premise that a body is is not just a body, is it? Um, not if the only body that we're really looking at is a male one in order to answer questions of, of a female one. Uh, so let's start by asking, how did men corner the market, if you like, in women's health and bodies and, and manage to consolidate themselves as the experts in terms of women's health? I think that this has a really long history and it's really the history of who was allowed to uh, perpetuate knowledge about bodies and illness um, over the centuries. And really, I mean, we're looking at quite a short history in terms of women's formal admittance to the hallowed halls of medical practice. It was only in 1876 that the uh, UK government passed an act called the Enabling Act that meant that uh, medical licenses could be given to women um, so that they were licensed to practice medicine officially. Um, And at that time in history, uh, UK universities could still legally bar women from entering. So they still, even with a government act, women still faced huge barriers to becoming professional doctors. Um, And considering the history, at least of what we would now call our mainstream Western medical canon, we're looking at history that goes back to the ancient Greeks. So for centuries before women were allowed to practice medicine with a license, men have been building up a body of knowledge that has formed the sort of historical context from which modern medical knowledge has evolved. So I really think that it's got to do with who was allowed to practice Um, but also who was allowed to learn and who was allowed to create knowledge. And that historically has always been men. I mean, it's really difficult to know how women's literacy evolved over the earlier centuries. But when we're talking about the production of knowledge, it's really something that's owned by men, even though women, of course, for centuries have been practicing medicine, have been caring for bodies, have been creating knowledge of their own. It's to do with how that knowledge is sanctioned and how that knowledge becomes part of an official history. And that, unfortunately, has been predominantly male and male dominated. So your book, Unwell Women, covers all of this. And, and you know, at its heart, it's a, a really profoundly quite disturbing look at the way in which female health and, and the paradigms around that have, have sort of maintained the patriarchal order. So tell me, you know, obviously I'm asking you on a sort of layman's terms to sort of condense your entire book, but how crucial a lever to this structural oppression of women was was just sort of defining them as literally physically unworthy or unable to embody power through either 
not being the thing that you use to sort of understand other things or by disempowering them with this sort of very reproductive paradigm of their of their being Yes, I think that's a, that's the perfect way to put it. Um, I think it's been a crucial lever in um, the oppression of women historically. Ideas about women's biology, women's bodies, women's mental capacity have been that have been sort of sanctioned by medicine and by medical knowledge and physicians have always reflected the sort of social status quo. And before medicine became a science or the science that we know it to be today, so sort of from the 19th century onwards, medicine was, I think, as much a sort of form of social learning. And it was really struck me as I was researching the book, and I don't think I thought this was how the book would necessarily turn out, but it really did strike me just how much medical, oppressive medical ideas about women are wrapped up in oppressive social ideas about women. And it was really striking that every time there was a significant movement forward for women in society, for example, um, in the 18th century, when Mary Wollstonecraft wrote the famous Vindication of the Rights of Women, she was writing then partly against some ideas about women's nervousness and over-emotionality that were being used by physicians as reasons why, for the good of their health, women shouldn't participate in things like professions and why they shouldn't be educated and why they should be these sort of happy, um, reproductive helpmates to their husbands and really confine themselves to the home and the hearth and uh, the childbed. So I think it's been crucial. I mean, similarly, in the 19th century, when debates were put to the fore around the women question, so we're looking at questions around women entering the medical profession, but also women going into higher education on an equal footing with men. And there was a huge backlash from within the medical community using biological theories about how women were defective, how their bodies were defective, how their minds would be affected by things like learning, which would then lead to a sort of detrimental effect on their bodies and reproductive systems. So it's like every time there was a sort of movement forward, the medical community or parts of the medical community would come in and argue back that progress was just not good for women's health. And what was good for women's health was getting married and having babies and being contented with a narrow and limited life. Your experiences of this with your own diagnosis of lupus are discussed in the book. Did you write the book because of your experience of bias or was it something that you were already interested in? My experience of being diagnosed with lupus was really fundamental to the early thinking that became this book, that became Unwell Women. I was diagnosed with lupus in 2010 after a difficult pregnancy with my second son, um, and I got very sick. I had a heart condition that at the time was quite mysterious. I was diagnosed quite quickly after 10 days in hospital, but the awareness that I did have this chronic condition made so many things about my past medical history suddenly make sense. And since my early 20s, I'd suffered what I didn't know were actually symptoms of lupus, so joint pain, um, swelling in my legs, um, just really sort of persistent chronic joint pain was the main symptom, but also mental, a lot of mental health issues because of the pain that I was in, a lot of other sort of mysterious symptoms, migraines. Um, and every time I went to the doctor, 
I was either sort of benignly told to stop worrying, like I was probably hormonal. Some doctors even suggested I might still be growing at the age of 22, <laughs> which is bizarre. Um, one thought I might be pregnant, another suggested I might have gout. Um, so it was either sort of benignly or malignly dismissed, depending on what doctor I saw. And I think as women, even though, as you said earlier, that often we're just not aware of these biases that might be rigged against women when we go to the doctors. We do feel and internalise the attitude that women's pain is to be minimised, right? That it will be, that we will be thought of as fussy or as attention seeking if we complain too much about our bodies and our pain. And I think we internalise these ideas that it's our sort of lot in life to be in pain, but it's also our lot in life to be not taken seriously or to be somehow diminished if we speak up about being in pain, somehow be taken less seriously as people. So I think that even though at that time when I was younger, I didn't know anything really about these sorts of biases in medicine. And I certainly didn't know that I was searching, that I should be searching for a better diagnosis, for better medical care, for better advocacy. I also had this kind of, you know, sort of embedded knowledge that that was just what was going to happen to me because I was a woman and a sort of shrugging kind of, I can expect no better really. It was only till I realized that something serious was going on with me that I could look back and think, okay, that wasn't okay. And not only was it not okay on an individual level, it's also the experience of countless women I know, countless women that I read about, um, thousands, hundreds and thousands, millions of women across the globe. Um, so the book really kind of expanded. There was sort of the germ of an idea to really look into why this happens. And over the last few years, especially when medical bias and the way that affects women has been coming into the UK and US press a lot, we've had, I think we've had a real reckoning with the treatment of women across all sectors of society since Me Too. I think that women speaking up about their experiences has been really important in society as a whole coming to understand that this is not just a sort of problem, a sort of trivial problem, but it's something that's actually damaging women's health and destroying, often destroying their lives. And although this is really important now, it's crucial to the conversation now, the long history of this was really important. I wanted to know how it got ingrained. How did this kind of thinking, these sorts of attitudes get embedded so that when I go to a GP now who might go, mm, I don't know, the pain can't be that bad. There's something in that. He's not, I don't think, intentionally biased towards me and definitely doesn't want to cause me harm. But yet there's something in the way that knowledge has been transmitted across the centuries that it's just a given that women will be always slightly distrusted, that there is always somebody else who's a better judge of, as you said earlier, of their pain, of their symptoms, the severity of what they're going through. And that definitely is a feature of early medical knowledge. It's men trying to take ownership of women's pain and trying to name it for them. And it happens from the very beginnings of medical history. And it's something that we're only now really, I feel, beginning to reckon with. I mean, historically, I have to say one thing that really stuck, which I, I kind of quite loved, was the story about Queen Victoria. She's had all these all these children, um, you know, without any kind of pain relief. And basically, Queen Victoria insisted uh, that actually, you know what, she was in pain when she was having childbirth and she was going to have chloroform. And, you know, it took a, it took a monarch 
<laughs> to push back against a male establishment. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about the internalization because, I mean, obviously, the point there is a point that now women doctors are well represented in our medical establishments. Do, do women doctors still carry that kind of internalization, or is that is better representation and diversity going to change this in any way? I think that better representation and diversity does go far to addressing these biases, but I don't think it's necessarily the case that women doctors would would be on top of the issues of dismissal of pain. I mean, anecdotally, from my own experience and anecdotally from friends and relatives, I've heard of um, difficult treatment from both male and female doctors. But then also my, you know, some of the consultants who've cared for me the best since I've been unwell have been all been women. And I don't think it's it's uh, a coincidence that women, these women are working on a really complex disease, lupus, that affects 90% more women than men, that is as yet incurable, is manageable, manageable, but there is no cure. Um, and that it also kind of intersects with reproductive health and maternal health a lot too. So I don't think it's a coincidence that women um, really at the top of their game in the field of autoimmune and immunology would want to kind of get to the bottom of this kind of conundrum. These biases that are present in in medical culture that affect us on a day-to-day level, I think they really go above the level of individual prejudice. I think it's sometimes that it's just the way that the knowledge has been shaped And there was a woman that I found in my research who was diagnosed with lupus in the 50s, just after lupus antibody was first discovered. And she had actually tested um, positive syphilis in a misdiagnosis with a a blood test called the Wasserman that was given to people before they got married, before they could obtain a marriage license to check they were clear of syphilis. But there was actually a contraindication with this because the same antibodies present in lupus are similar to the antibodies present in syphilis. So this poor woman was not allowed to marry and she was also treated with arsenic, which was what was used, or an arsenic derivative, which was what was used to treat syphilis in the mid-century, which is incredible. Um, And she underwent years and years of treatment for an infection she didn't have, while also at the same time battling with the symptoms of an undiagnosed serious chronic disease for which she wasn't being medicated or treated. And it really struck me that she was really then the victim of, of an era which was very concerned with maintaining sexual health and marriageable purity after the Second World War, but also the victim of a lack of knowledge at the time because there just was not the diagnostic protocols to ensure that her disease was properly managed and she suffered for years. This sort of attitude is actually written in. So when this poor woman was being treated, she was also being treated for mental health issues in a really brutal way in the mid-century. So she was given electroshock therapy, for example. And when you think her undiagnosed pain, she was suffering undiagnosed pain, she was suffering the social stigma of being diagnosed with syphilis. And somewhere in the history of this disease called lupus, is this is written. This was a this was a formative moment in the history of lupus. So it's there, even if it's not articulated by doctors and consultants now. Somewhere there's an attitude. Somewhere it's there. Somewhere where it's shaped the knowledge. So I think when it comes to biases, it's really you know the biases have to be found and sort of actively searched out. 
rather than just, okay, we must listen to women, which of course is so important. But it's also about looking at how this knowledge has been framed with biases sort of intricately written into it. Let's talk about women's voices then. So you were talking about, you know, greater diversity within the medical profession. We're talking about really being active about seeking out biases, not just sort of assuming that they're going to appear to you. But also you get the other, you know, the other set of female voices who are speaking out about issues, um, things like endometriosis, childbirth and postnatal depression. Menopause is a, is a massive one. I mean, another thing that, that came through the book was very much this use of um shaming and invalidating uh, women's physical and mental manifestations rather than, you know, seeing them as a very natural outcrop of whatever was happening. Do you feel that there is a big change in the way that women are speaking out now about all sorts of things, you know, not specifically things to do with their reproductive system, but that, you know, it does all kind of seem to come back to that essential ground, if you like, doesn't it, in terms of how women are understood in, in in the health sphere? And how important is it that people speak out? I think the culture of women speaking out about their medical experiences and also about their experiences of pain and illness are hugely revolutionary. I think it's really radical and really important to hear the stories of women who are experiencing ill health, who are experiencing pain, who are experiencing um, medical dismissal, The bravery and courage, I think, that it takes to really bear those experiences after centuries of being socialized to keep quiet, keep silent, and also to be ashamed of our bodies. And so much of the gaps in knowledge that we have around female health at the moment, I think, can be rooted in a sense of shame in general, a sort of societal and cultural sense of shame around women's bodies, around women's organs, around how we are allowed to speak about our own bodies. So now, now that we're at a time when not only a women's body experiences part of something that, you know, is happening, women are speaking out, but we're also embracing this in our culture. I mean, it's becoming part of some truly incredible memoirs, brilliant websites, even films in TV series, and just the sort of visibility and acceptance of illness and ill health um, is, I think, crucially, crucially important. And I think that's where change really comes from, from women understanding that they're not alone. They don't have to feel ashamed about their bodies. And if they do feel ashamed about them, that it's not their fault. And yeah, I just find it truly radical. And I think it's an incredible time, we, a time of learning. It's a time where medicine can learn an awful lot from the way that women are able to tell their stories outside of the doctor's office. And to reclaim that narrative, there were always female healers, weren't there, throughout history? The other thing that I wanted to ask you was about this idea of medical facts and women fitting into medical facts and how challenging (laughs) the female state is apparently or has been in medicine. So in the book, you talk about how our symptoms are the reality of our illnesses. Um, And I'm going to quote here, we mystify medicine because medicine isn't looking for answers in the right places. We mystify medicine because medicine isn't paying the right kind of attention. We mystify medicine because medicine needs unassailable facts. Where should medicine be looking for answers? And how do we meet this sort of rigid system with female experience, which is cyclical. I think that medicine as a 
as a science, both a science and an art that's been based on male knowledge is shaped according to this idea of the sort of, un, yeah, the unassailability of fact. So a symptom is something that's experienced in illness, but a sign is a diagnostic marker that will be accepted by a doctor as evidence of a disease. Chronic diseases especially manifest in such diverse ranges of symptoms between individual people. A woman with endometriosis might have an extremely diverse presentation of symptoms to another woman in that waiting room. And I think that something I figured out from my research is that a lot of these diseases that are either specific to the female body or that have a very high female preponderance like autoimmune diseases like endometriosis their symptoms are so diverse across individuals that there's there'll be rarely a, somebody a sufferer who fits into a sort of very strict diagnostic criteria i don't think it's any coincidence that the diseases that medicine finds most difficult to treat diagnose and cure are those which manifest so diversely in women because Symptoms can change from day to day, especially in chronic diseases that are characterized by pain. And pain in itself is so subjective. And for women, especially, the expression of pain to a doctor is rigged against them from the start. There was a really brilliant study done in the early 2000s called The Girl Who Cried Pain about the way that women's expressions of pain are interpreted um, in medical settings and how those different expressions go on to then affect their diagnoses and treatment. This was the famous study that showed that women, when they're in pain, are much more likely to be offered sedatives or antidepressants than they are to be offered pain medication, which men are. But it was also a study that showed that the way that women talk about pain, women tend to talk about pain more emotionally. They tend to relate their pain more to the people around them. So a man might say, I mean, I'm generalizing, but a man might say, oh, I've got a stabbing pain in my chest. Whereas a woman might say, you know, the pain keeps me up at night. I can't look after my children. They might relate it more to social and emotional settings. And it was shown that when women do that or when people do that, they're less likely to be taken seriously or their pain is less likely to be regarded as something serious. So I think that what we need is not just the advice to healthcare professionals to listen carefully to women when they talk about pain, which of course is really important. But it's also to accept that sometimes women and people will not fit into a rigid diagnostic criteria, but they still deserve to be referred for further tests, for further investigation. If a person says they're in pain, you know, the dismissal of that because they don't fit a rigid criteria is part of what holds up diagnoses of diseases like endometriosis for seven years, which is the average in this country. She just wanted to get your thoughts on, um, you know, obviously a lot of uh, health is now moving into a, you know, a, a technological uh, zone that, you know, there's there's going to be a lot more uh, technology involved in diagnostics. We have lots of apps now that are trackers providing services within the health industry. But they've also come under criticism for being gender biased. Uh, and it's no secret that, you know, the tech industry is very male 
dominated and, and very male biased. But, you know, are they just the latest health paradigm? It's amazing that it's replicated itself. Can we stop that? <laughs> this is so interesting to me because I was just reading about these new algorithms that are being designed, the kind of algorithms that can extrapolate from huge amounts of data and patient records and help improve diagnostic times and help guide uh, treatment guidelines. And I was reading about how, as you pointed out, they're often more likely than not created by men. The sort of input and the way that they respond to data, these algorithms, is also based on that historical knowledge that's biased against women. That the algorithm sort of has its own embedded biases. So when the algorithms interpret data, they're still expressing bias, even though the aim is supposedly neutrality, right? That's the point of these. So I was reading about how this can be solved and it's about going in and working out and actually sort of removing, like weeding out the biases. Because if the biases already exist in the knowledge and creation of the tech, then you can't just expect the tech to not perpetuate those. Like it has to be made in order to sort of redress its biases. So I think this is really fascinating. I think also in terms of the health tech, it seems to be a really sort of double-edged sword because so many health tech things that I've been reading about seem to have this narrative behind them, especially in the femtech world, so the world of sort of feminine health technologies. Um, they have a narrative around them that they're solving some of the problems of medical bias. So, for example, with the some of the earlier period and ovulation trackers and fertility trackers, a narrative of women being able to take back control of their bodies and their fertility and their healthcare. But then at the same time, you're being tracked, right? You're producing data. And quite often the tech is a huge thing. You are a human being. So those two things can't marry, you know, the, the tech cannot be that individuated. So it's very interesting, I think, the way that tech kind of takes on these narratives and not necessarily exploits them, because I think there's a genuine interest amongst some fantech uh, innovators to really provide sort of better, better um, solutions for health management for women um, across, you know, menstrual cycle health, reproductive health. I was even reading about some really brilliant innovations in the developing world to do with handheld um, gadgets that help women take scans of their for checking for cervical cancer, for example. You know, some really incredible, really fascinating innovations in global health. So it's really, I think it's hugely fascinating, not unproblematic at all, um, but also, you know, something to really watch. I mean, I've just found out only yesterday that the femtech, so the health and wellbeing industry for, for women, is projected to be worth 25 billion by 2025, which is extraordinary. It's just an extraordinary figure. I mean, the wellness industry itself is worth, what, 50 billion or something. They're either creating a problem and then offering a solution, or they're really trying to, you know, there really is a market for this. You know, women want to take back some control over their health. I was interested too in the fertility apps marketing themselves as contraception 2.0, so unmedicated contraception. And I think that's an interesting language too, because there is a real distrust around pharmaceutical industries that exists. There's a real distrust, especially around things like hormonal contraception. So it's intriguing to me that there is, you know, the sort of keying into these kind of anxieties and offering something that is, you know, more reliable, more 
holistic, but yet at the same time, it's sort of making you this objective data, right? So yeah, it's really intriguing, fascinating area. I'd be interested to see how they deal with the point that you made earlier about certain conditions present in so many different ways and how tech can deal with those nuances. It'll be a, a very interesting way to see how it, how it moves forward. Let's just talk about where we are now, though. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, unconscious or conscious biases that women still have to deal with today um, around more mainstream medical approaches to health and well-being. What, what should all women bear in mind when they negotiate a medical environment, would you say? I don't like to say that women should go to the doctors armed. I mean, it seems so counterintuitive that if you are concerned about your body, that you then sort of build a case for yourself. But in many, in many ways, I think it's it's a really good thing to, if you can, to be an advocate for yourself, to be an advocate for your own body, and to understand that if you if you do have treatment that you are not happy with, if you feel that you're not being taken seriously, if you feel like your symptoms and your experience is being undermined, I think that there is always a way to address that not necessarily in the room, but I mean, it's difficult with the NHS because we get the GPs that we get, right? And I think on the whole, those GPs do not want to hurt and harm us, but the pressures of the NHS, the pressures the NHS are under can sometimes mean that we do feel it's a revolving door. And that if we have a non-specific pain that's concerning us, it might not concern them enough. So I think it can really, really help to keep diaries of your symptoms. I think it can really help to get your doctors to write down the advice that they're giving you so that you have evidence of what's been said. I think it can really help to ask to explain to your practice manager if you feel you haven't been treated adequately. And to just understand as well that any treatment you encounter in that room, if it is negative, it isn't your fault. That's not to say that you should go expecting a bad experience. But if you do get treated in a way that you feel isn't right, that's upsetting or that is diminishing, that it isn't your fault, that there are often other forces at work in that room that maybe even the doctor isn't aware of, the unconscious biases we've been talking about, but also the sort of external pressures of what is prioritised. What you can hope for is that we're moving towards a culture where women's health needs, women's diverse health needs are going to be prioritised, which will mean a shift in priorities, a shift in knowledge, a shift in emphasis. Also, if you feel, if you don't feel comfortable advocating for yourself, maybe take a close friend, somebody who can speak for you if you find that difficult. And I think there are ways that you can sort of navigate your own health experiences to guard yourself a little bit against the possibilities that you may have an experience that is less than ideal. But be a reliable witness to yourself. Don't discount your innate knowledge. It might not be medical, but you are still in your body, aren't you? You know. You're absolutely right. You know your body. Your body is your own. If your doctor distrusts what you're saying, you are still the most reliable witness of your body, regardless of what anyone says to you or the attitudes that you encounter. You know, your body is your own. You can trust in your body. You know how you feel, and you are the best narrator of what you're going through. So ultimately, is medicine still a critical frontier for women's equality? And if so, what is the change that you want to see and how can your book drive it? 
I think medicine is a really crucial frontier for women's equality. I think that women deserve and need good health if they're to participate fully equally in society, in the workplace. They need to be able to know that their treatment, their bodies, their lives, their mental health is prioritised. That Because health is just the beginning, right? If you have good health, then you're able to you know, function in your life. It's not just an illness, it's not just and pain and not just isolated instances. They affect how you live, how you think, how you move through the world, how you feel about yourself. You know, in order for us to kind of gain full equality, I think that medical equality is really a crucial frontier. And I've been pleased recently to see that listening to women is being now a strategy that is being put forward by government. So on International Women's Day this year, the Women's Health Strategy was launched, which is an inquiry into the ways that uh, the NHS and healthcare providers might be failing women in the areas of reproductive, gynecological, maternal health especially. But what's so brilliant about this strategy is that there's a questionnaire to fill in, but there is also the opportunity to give evidence. So if you're able to and you want to, you can submit written evidence about your medical experiences. So for the first time, I think this kind of subjective knowledge, like women telling their stories, talking about their pain, is something that hopefully will start to change policy. And that's what we need. You know, we can talk about this, share histories, we can share our stories, but what we really need is policy change funding changes, funding priorities, and change to happen from the very top. So I hope that, you know, we are now, now that what really makes, gives me hope is that women's stories, women listening to women, women's subjective knowledge is now being, it's being marshaled, it's being valued in a way I don't think it ever has been before. So I mean, just be hopeful for that and hope that that really will be a driving force for change and that that will help, you know, shape how we understand some of these really inexplicable diseases that are affecting so many women today. Eleanor Cleghorn, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Every Woman is a global platform for women in business that drives positive change by empowering women to achieve their professional potential. Visit everywoman.com to discover how we're advancing women in business and inspiring a generation of future female leaders. For Every Woman, Everywhere.